and welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast number 163 and the last of 2021, which in a way is kind of sad, but it gives everyone a bit of a break, which is good. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and I think I gave myself a sprained wrist this week because I had to fill in a form, and scrolling down to my year of birth took so long I think I pulled a muscle. It's also the time of year when the news starts to dry up a little bit, so news organisations everywhere are scrambling a bit for stories. It tends to stay that way until mid-January, although the struggle is certainly less than when you're at a newspaper. I am trying to set up some interviews so that there is a podcast for close to the beginning of January, if not the first Wednesday. I've already got a work meeting set up for January, so it kind of feels like 22 has started already. We've already seen Easter merchandise in the stores here, so next it will be summer clothes and Father's Day. As usual, the weather has been up and down, mostly down, and we're now less than a week away from the shortest day. Well, shortest in terms of sunlight hours, I guess. The day itself is the same as the other 365. Here, at least, there are lots of school COVID cases, and there still doesn't seem to be a lot of info around on the new variant. I managed to stay awake at the weekend to flip the channel over to the Grey Cup final on Sunday and then fell asleep before the kickoff. And the dog interrupted an interview this week for the first time because there was a cat teasing him outside of the window. As all of that information was pretty mundane, anything else I could tell you about regarding the past week would be even less interesting, so let's get to who this week's guests are. So, on the last podcast of 2021, we have conversations with Lisa Ryden, Vice President, Corporate Social Responsibility at Tetra Pak, Heather Anfang, Senior Vice President of U.S. Dairy Foods at Lando Lakes, and Jauke Feldman, Business Development Manager at Friesland Campina Ingredients. And of course, we also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland at StoneX. That brings us to the news that you may have missed from the past seven days. The latest IATP report says the emissions of Europe's 20 biggest meat and dairy companies exceed those of the Netherlands. The World Championship Cheese Contest in the US has expanded the 2022 categories to include curds. And the USDA opened the 2022 sign-up for dairy margin coverage. In the UK, Muller is targeting a 30% carbon reduction from dairy farmers that supply its milk. The Urgent Company is acquiring ice cream maker Cool House and switching it to plant-based. And Illy Group is developing an ice cream production facility in Indonesia. In Finland, Valio is researching future food production using cellular agriculture Canada's Food Price Report 2022 was published, and it seems dairy is the category that's going to see the biggest price hike. And Dairy Farmers of America is closing its Nashville Country Delight Farms plant. Fonterra Farmers overwhelmingly approved the new flexible shareholding structure, and Nestle and Hochwald have started a joint climate project. Foodative introduced vegan casein, Simrise acquired giraffe foods, and Hydrosol debuted processed cheese preparations without added phosphates or citrates. And you can read all of these and many more at DairyReporter.com.
So, to today's first interview, and we're talking a little bit about food waste, which is the subject of the latest Tetra Pak Index. I won't go through it, but you can read the article that accompanies this podcast, and you can also hear about it now in an interview with Lisa Ryden, Vice President of Corporate Social Responsibility at Tetra Pak. To start with, before we even start looking at technology and looking at Tetra Pak's involvement. We hear lots and lots of stories about how bad food waste is. I wonder if you could give me a bit of a summary of what some of the main issues are with food waste. Sure, absolutely, Jim. So I just wanted first to build on that, what you said, uh, what we hear, because this is also what we have found in our survey, the Tetra Pak Index, that this is a big worry in society and among consumers. So, for instance, in the survey, over three quarters of the respondents, 77%, said that they do consider food waste an environmental concern. So I think that it's really reflected also in the survey. But I would say that, um, I mean, besides going into directly environmental concern, I do think that overall that we have an unsustainable situation where we have on one hand 700 million people regularly going to bed hungry and at the same time we have one third of all food being produced worldwide that is not being consumed and then looking at of course the environmental concern about that is that when this food is lost or wasted all of those natural resources that were used in different stages of the supply chain going into producing that food they're also lost at the same time And if we're going to look at what that is, I mean, we can see if we start with greenhouse gas emissions, the food loss and waste accounts for as much as 8% of the global greenhouse gas emissions. And that is the same as if you would say that food loss and waste would be the world's third largest producer of emissions after US and China. And then in, in addition to the greenhouse gas emissions, all these resources that have gone into producing that food that is lost or wasted also contributes to ecosystem degradation and biodiversity loss of the overall food system as a whole. So I think these are very serious issues related to food loss and waste. And if we don't look ahead, I mean, we see that with the global population projected to reach 9.7 billion by 2050, and by that also requiring 70% more food available for consumption, you can imagine those issues will only become more critical. Some of the numbers are quite scary when you start thinking about it. Um, I wonder why Tetra Pak did a survey on this and what groups and where you looked, because clearly there are big differences in what's happening around the world. Yeah, so this is part of uh, the Tetra Pak Index. That is an annual report, which we now have conducted for the 14th time. The purpose of this is to provide insight about global trends and opportunities that is shaping the future in the food and beverage industry and to provide kind of a comprehensive perspective from different parts of the world we include 28 markets in the survey and the respondents they are including people from 18 to 65 years old uh, at different education and income levels with and without children. And to be more specific about this year's edition of the survey, 
we looked more specifically at what is called the sticky trends that we expect to last beyond COVID-19 pandemic. One overall thing that we found is that the pandemic has really made consumers rethink the way they live and also change the way they act. And so I wonder if you could elaborate on some of the findings of the study. I know you started by mentioning that three quarters of respondents considering it an environmental concern. Yeah, I think, but overall, I mean, the findings show that the worries about the environment are very strong. In the top of uh, environmental concerns is pollution and plastic litter in the ocean as the joint kind of top worry. But as mentioned before, more than three quarters also worried a lot about food waste and the same for global warming. So one encouraging thing that we see based on this finding about worries is also this shift from only concern also to action, where a majority of the respondents, 72%, agree that individuals like themselves need to act now to not be failing future generation on inaction. So just to give two examples of areas where respondents say they take action, I mean, we take food waste. Respondents say that they are now planning meals more carefully to avoid waste and that 54% say that they are actually throwing away less food now than before the pandemic. And also more than half of respondents say they are likely to recycle more in the next year as part of this contribution. But then also that's about the consumers themselves. But looking outside of that, consumers are also expecting businesses to take action and lead away on this. So 61% of respondents said that they are looking to brands to lead away and, and helping them to contribute to addressing these issues in their personal lives. And they also say that they would be more likely to or use a specific brand if they would offer environmentally sound packaging. A lot of people seem to be aware of food waste, and you mentioned that people are starting to do things that are improving. Are you seeing an improvement, and why isn't it improving quickly enough? Because we've been talking about food waste for several years now, I guess. Yeah, I think that, I mean, first of all, I don't think we have enough data globally. Uh, when I say we, I mean in, in general, to understand exactly the movements here. And also, I think that the drivers of food loss and waste, they vary so much across countries and the stages of the food value chain. So, for example, so in high income countries, there is a relatively high share of food waste during the consumption stage, whereas in low income countries, on the other hand, they have a higher share of food loss during production, handling and storage. But if we look at this part at the consumer, which we discussed, it's estimated about 35% of the total food loss and waste that is generated by the final consumer. I believe that although you, you mentioned that consumers are aware of this and why is it improving, I do think that as for many other similar behaviors, the awareness does not necessarily always automatically translate into effective action. So I think more information to consumers about the impact of food waste and also what they can do about it would help. So just to mention like three examples would be around meal planning and picking the right size of packaging for your needs. So if you can match kind of your consumption needs, if there's packaging of the products available that can match that amount or that you need, then that gives an opportunity to reduce food waste. 
And in the index to connect to that, we found that about 40% of respondents say they're buying more products in portion sizes to limit household food waste. So 40% still give a kind of a room for improvement on that one, I think. Secondly, around shelf life, because perishable foods with short shelf life has a tendency to be wasted more frequently. So buying products with a longer shelf life can make a difference. But we also see that here, again, consumer perception can stand in the way. For instance, if we look at milk, in some countries, pasteurized milk is seen as more fresh than uh, UHT milk, uh, which has a much longer shelf life. Whereas in reality, pasteurization and UHT are just different heat treatments. So here, UHT could contribute, UHT milk with a longer shelf life could then contribute to both a lower carbon footprint, but also less food waste. And as a third example, I just would like to mention the expiration and best before dates, where I think clear labeling for consumers is key, and also what the dates actually mean. We saw already in last year's index that if a best before date has passed, then about one third of consumer wouldn't consider using the product. But it was also a common tactic. You cannot easily check the best before date or expiration date. That was the number one pain point when it comes to purchasing online, for instance, where is the difference where you are in a, a physical shop. So making the expiration date labels less confusing and helping consumers on the clarity of these also in e-commerce, that would also help. You mentioned the labeling there, and I think that you're right. It is one thing where there's clearly an issue, and it doesn't seem that there's a lot of consistency when it comes to different countries or different companies being able to make it clearer for customers. Um, how do you think that that can be improved? <laughs> yeah, overall, and, I, and we, I mean, this is something that we can come back to, but I think, of course, standardization and collaboration across the industry will be necessary, I think. I mean, coming back to what we just talked about, about wasting food, for instance, in the UK, we found that 35% of people waste milk because it has not been used within the use-by date. Again, I mean, I don't know exactly how to solve it, but I do think an effort, a concerted effort in the industry to make expiration date labels clearer and also make this available when you buy online could be at least one step forward. And you also mentioned about packaging. Um, how does packaging size affect things? Because obviously we're trying to reduce the amount of packaging, but if you buy something that's way too big, then it's maybe going to lead to food waste. How does packaging size enter into this? Yeah, I think uh, you're right in that sense that at some point it can seem like a trade-off. On the other hand, I believe it's extremely important to address the food waste issue and would then look as a first priority to make sure that you buy the right amount of food that you're going to use. Having said that, so whatever size you use from a package, you can still make a good choice about the environmental profile of that package. So in that sense, I think you should think about both. Coming on to Tetra Pak, what are some of the ways that you can help make a positive impact in this area? Yeah, looking back, this is not a new area for Tetra Pak. So, of course, since our foundation, we have been committed to developing technologies to reduce food loss and waste as part of our vision of making food safe and available everywhere. 
but if we look at our the solutions we have today in terms of food processing and packaging and starting with the food loss part so how we can contribute to prevent and reduce food loss during production i think it starts with the processing and packaging solutions that we have and how they can minimize waste and environmental impact when manufacturing food so by advancing our solutions we also can enable our customers to get more out of the raw material that they buy and reduce the food loss during their production so we have as an example if we take one of our latest in processing technology combined with what we call the tetra pack e3 speed hyper filling machine and put this as a line at a customer this solution is now reducing greenhouse gas emissions by 20 percent water usage by 70% and product losses by 30%. So that is the core kind of our, our solutions. But we're also working on connected smart technology and other innovations to be able to further minimize food loss in production and filling lines. And for this, we have set a goal for 2030, which is to reduce production food loss by 50% in our best practice lines uh, that we provide to customers. Then if we look at the food loss that is created during production, we are also helping customers to turn that food loss back into useful ingredients. So here we, together with customers, make use of that remnant from production waste. An example here is when producing soy milk or tofu, where often part of those pureed soybeans is discarded. Now we have developed with customers a whole bean processing solution where this otherwise unwanted material is being captured and then can be turned into high value ingredients. Thirdly, when it comes to milk processing, there's a big difference, especially in food loss when it comes to different countries and in terms of scale. We have this dairy hub model where we help smallholder farmers in 10 countries to expand their yield per cow with our technical support and, and training. And by linking these smallholder farmers to customers, they can get access to local dairy processors and then preventing the food loss along the value chain. So that those are some of the things if we look at the food loss and the production part. If we talk about uh, food waste more at the consumer stage, we come back a lot to what we have talked about here previously. So overall, food waste can be reduced and by prolonging the shelf life of products by packaging. And here I would like to point out, I mean, again, a little bit back to the history of Tetra Pak. So almost 70 years ago now, Tetra Pak actually revolutionized the food and beverage industry when introducing the first septic filling machine, because this can help then keep food safe and nutritious over several months without preservatives or refrigeration. So combined with processing solutions, then the pasteurization or UHT treatment, it can help then in addressing food waste. I mean, connecting back a little bit to the where we are now in this middle of the pandemic, we have seen that through periods of lockdown, this demand for shelf-stable food items that can be stored for an extended period of time without refrigeration has been rising dramatically, quite naturally, and um, demand has been particularly high when we have seen certain supermarket items have been scarce. 
these shelf-stable foods have also helped in making it possible for manufacturers to reach consumers also in remote locations. Finally, back to if we think about how Tetra Pak can contribute and back to the point about packaging size, Tetra Pak has offers a very wide portfolio in terms of different sizes and formats so that consumers and customers can take the packaging type that best fit that type of product, but also for consumers the right size for their needs. Companies like Tetra Pak are able to make a direct difference and help your customers and eventually the end consumer. But in terms of what each level can do in terms of government and producers, manufacturers, consumers, what do you think that the roles of each of those are to help make a difference? Because clearly it's not just the issue of one group. No, you're absolutely right. It's Again, back to this collaboration piece that I mentioned earlier, I think a good place to start is to set more concrete targets on food loss and waste reduction, either specific ones or across the value chain. So, for instance, in the European Union, it wants to reduce food loss and waste by 50 percent by 2050. And as mentioned earlier, I mean, in the Tetrapack perspective, we have set our food loss reduction target at the 50 percent for 2030. What is extremely important though is that when setting targets they also have to be followed by transparency on performance and progress and finding ways to share this information more with consumers. And finally I think that the need that we just said about collaboration cannot be overstated. Global challenges like these have no specific borders and uh, really require international cooperation and multilateral responses. And we think that more transdisciplinary research on food system transition pathways is needed to inform further policy development and practice to know what needs to be done to uh, address these issues. And in this context, I also want to mention that Tetrapack recently released uh, a white paper on the potential contributions of the food processing and packaging solutions industry in this food system transformation. And in this white paper, we explore this need for more investments into science and innovation to seize the potential. And our intent with this paper is to start a dialogue. And here we really welcome input as we refine our thinking and continue to articulate our future ambitions. Nice to see that companies are making a difference and that we're hopefully heading in the right direction anyway. It's, yeah, and also that these issues are tackled together when it comes to food systems on one hand and then climate change, for instance, or biodiversity on the other. These are all linked, so they also need a, a linked response, which makes it even more complex. Yeah, absolutely. When you, you think of food waste and then you also see, on the other hand, I think I saw a report recently that said that a third of the world's food relies on pollination by insects that are under threat. So you you get to realize that it's not just about not wasting food, it's about protecting the source of the food as well. Yeah, I think food loss and waste is just one out of several challenges with uh, global food systems today. Now we go to the Netherlands for something on ingredients with Friesland Campina Ingredients. 
The company recently partnered with AGT Food, one of the world's largest suppliers of value-added pulses, staple foods and ingredients, to enter the plant-based protein market with two powder solutions. To give us all the info is Jauke Feldman, Business Development Manager at Friesland Campina Ingredients. I just wonder what the reasoning is behind going into plant-based with uh, being a dairy cooperative first and foremost. Yeah. Well, thanks for the question, uh, Jim, that one. It's an interesting one. Now, very excited to tell you a bit more about the Plantaris and plant for Frisian Campina. And it starts actually with the why, and that is the, the consumer. Demand for plant-based products is a trend right now that is shaping the future of how we eat. Consumers are more conscious on uh, on health than, uh, than ever. And demand for plant-based products is increasing just very fast. I think uh, that's clear. And more people are identifying uh, themselves as flexitarian. And I also want a wider range of protein options from plant and dairy sources to suit their uh, changing needs. And at Friesen Campina, uh, we know protein. I mean, it's a part of our DNA with already 150 years of experience in proteins. Being active in segments like performance, active and medical nutrition, we really know how to develop the best applications and how to use the proteins well in these segments. And because of that, we know that we also have a value to add in this space for our customers. So Friesen Campina Ingredients really believes in plant and dairy side by side. And that's also how we position it within Friesen Campina Ingredients. We are a nutrition company with a strong core in dairy. So um, I think it really fits and makes sense. We can help our customers uh, like we also do with dairy to bring new formats and propositions and help the end consumers to consume even better products than which they are right now in the market. You partnered with AGT Foods. Why did you partner with that company in particular? Yeah, so the brand Plantaris was born out of Friesen Campina Ingredients and AGT Foods, collective expertise. So as a market leader in dairy proteins, which we are ourselves, it makes sense to partner with a company with comparable expertise in plant-based products to bring our Plantaris brand to life. And AGT was a clear choice as a leading innovator in plant-based ingredients and products made from pulses. Our scientific expertise and the resources, as well as also the key application and processing knowledge we both have, they overlap perfectly with in-demand products and offerings. Because of this, I really believe that both companies together, we have all we need to expand our portfolios in this new space and also make an immediate impact for our customers and the of AGTs. So I think, and it's not only in the personal title, that together our companies are uniquely positioned to take plant-based protein to the next level helping food brands and manufacturers to make the most out of the opportunities which are opening up right now in this rapidly growing and exciting market. So can you tell me a bit more about Plantaris and uh, how you develop the products for the new brand? Yeah, yeah, of course. So plant proteins have uh, many advantages as we see right now, but as mentioned, there are also still quite a lot of challenges to overcome. And one of these main challenges is taste and texture. Plantaris brand, which you build, is, are building right now, helps to solve these challenges with uh, plant-based protein products and, and new solutions. And together with AGT Foods, as just mentioned, we've developed a very versatile powder with a very neutral taste and smooth mouthfeel, which makes it for our customers very easy to use in their processes. And Plantaris is designed for a wide range of functional food and nutrition applications, and it's particularly well suited to drinks and liquid formulations, thanks to its uh, high solubility and faster dispersibility, which result then in a low viscosity, uh, making for a smooth mouthfeel and helping to maintain the drinkability of high protein uh, products, all while maximizing the delivery of protein content. We can really go up quite high. 
And what's great is that this means that Plantaris addresses actually two major consumer trends in this respect, both the demand for plant-based products and the demand for convenient on-the-go nutritional solutions, for example, in drinks. And in addition, Plantaris can also be used in traditional powder supplement formats. So it's a fine, easy flowing powder, and it makes it particularly suited for high-end or premium powder products, as these attributes are typically associated with high-quality products. And we started with two sources. One is a Faba isolate, 90%, and a pea isolate, 85%, and two versatile sources of pulse proteins, I would say. And we developed on that one different application suggestions for customers to test and try and really see if it adds value for them. And so what is it that sets these apart from other products that are out there on the market in terms of the benefits? Yeah, I think the plant-based market is growing in general, which is, I think, really good. And the ingredients, protein products uh, are also really improving fast, which is a good sign. The industry is innovating fast together uh, to make the change and, and come with new grades. So, yeah, how you set yourself apart from others, you really have to work on that one. And we try to focus on two key challenges, as I mentioned earlier the taste and texture. And I believe there we have something which is new and also helping our customers to bring something to the table, which is mainly improving on exactly that. Next to that, we also focused on making some improvements in the powder properties. So uh, made some changes in the process over there. And you can think then of ease in handling, improvements in dispersibility, dissolvability and, uh, and stability. So improvements from which we think they really add value in this space. And what kind of end products do you envisage these ingredients being used in? Well, Plantaris is designed for a wide range of products, so from functional foods and, and all kinds of nutritional applications. And it's particularly well suited to drinks and liquid formulations, as I mentioned, thanks to its high solubility and fast dispersibility. What is great is that uh, Plantaris is, by focusing really on these applications, you really see that the products which are now in the market on performance active and medical nutrition and then you can think of RTDs, uh, powder, but also uh, in the future, perhaps uh, bars, that you really see that we can get better end products by using the grades of Plantaris. It's a quite a broad and versatile powder, which can be used in all kinds of uh, end products. Is this just the start of the relationship with AGT Foods, or will you be developing other things independently? Uh, of course, we hope that the Plantaris range will become a huge success. Eh? So uh, together with AGT, we will work very hard on that one. And that is really adding value for our customers in applications and finally also for consumers going to benefit from the, yeah, the collaboration. And that's in the end why we do this together, to bring good products to consumers. So full focus on the product launch for now and more applications, which we can improve with the launch base portfolio. Esprit and Capina Ingredients and AGT Foods are both determined to raise the bar in plant-based proteins. Different areas like superior taste, quality, nutrition and efficiency are key. And if we see possibilities to improve or develop new solutions in this area together, we will certainly look into it. So for now, we really start with P and Faba, but in the future, it's also possible that we'll develop other sources. Is it, is it being used in any finished products now? We're just, uh, just live, uh, really literally two weeks. We are using it right now in applications which we developed ourselves, but yeah, we're at the start. So we're not yet in commercially launched uh, products uh, yet. Obviously, you must have tested it extensively. What are the results like from that? Yeah, re really good. I mean, it was quite a process um, because, of course, what you already asked earlier, you also have to set yourself apart from what is already in the market. We want to do it better and improve on uh, on certain key things. So we had extensively tested at least the application suggestions and the, and the product in different applications to see where it really adds value and benefits so that we can... Uh, 
realize the full potential of plant-based products. And where do you go from here in plant-based? Is this the end of it or are there other areas that you intend to work in? Now we really see it as an uh, as a start. So uh, the two grades we uh, we launched uh, with PM Faber together with AGT is is the, the base portfolio, and we will build further from there. I cannot go right now into detail in where and how and what, but I would say uh, stay tuned and uh, for now full focus on the launch of Plantaris. If you're like me, you'll be busy in the run-up to Christmas doing some cooking and baking. All that work for just one meal. But anyway, many countries have had issues with certain products. I know here in Scotland you can go into one store and it has no snacks. Go into another one and it does, but it's low on fruit. So it seems there's a combination of things going on. But at this time of year, if you're doing a lot of cooking and baking, you want to know all the ingredients are going to be available. And one staple for the kitchen is butter, or butter, depending on where you are and how you pronounce it. To set our minds at rest, in the US, Lando Lakes says it's going to be fine. And to tell us about it and why is Heather Anfang, Senior Vice President of US Dairy Foods at Lando Lakes. Before we even get into the issues around butter right now, what are the logistics of producing and distributing butter all around the country, as you clearly do? Yeah, well, so Land Lakes is a farmer cooperative and has been for 100 years. And so we start at the farm. We have dairy members who are also our owners who are producing milk every day, you know, and have been throughout the pandemic, right? We always say the cows never stop milking. So we pick up that milk from their farms. We bring it to our manufacturing facility, and there we produce butter and finished goods. We ship it to warehouses kind of all over the country. So we have a number of warehouses all over the country, and then it's shipped to the retail customers, so the grocery stores, and gets on the shelf, and consumers buy it from there. So it's fairly simple. You make it sound really easy. I'm sure that it's... uh... There are lots of logistical issues with shipping the amount, the quantities that you do around the country because I would imagine that, especially with sustainability being an issue these days, that there's probably, you know, you have to optimize all of that in terms of making sure that you're not wasting energy and wasting fuel and that kind of thing. Absolutely. I mean, efficiency is the name of the game. And so, yes, how do you do that? It sounds simple, but how do you do that in the most efficient way? We have a number of facilities that are producing butter. So, you know, as close as we can to the farm and then move it around in the country kind of as close geographically as possible so that we can be efficient. Tis the season, Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, They must put a strain on all of those logistics when you throw a pandemic into the equation as well. Absolutely. You know, this is our busy season. So we are shipping and selling a lot of butter right now as consumers are baking and cooking and we love it. We love it. But we're not immune to the issues that are happening kind of around around the world, right? So there's labor shortages, there's driver shortages, but our team is working so hard every day to get product to the shelves and we're doing that to ensure that there's great butter on the shelf for all of these baking and cooking needs. But it is different today. And so a lot of planning going on to ensure that that supply chain is robust and working, but definitely a challenge. 
Sure. Now, I know that in Europe, there are stockpiles of butter. Is that the case for you and in the US? And is there a plentiful supply at the moment? Yeah, you know, so I wouldn't probably wouldn't use the term stockpile, but there is because we're a farmer cooperative, because one of our missions as being the farmer cooperative is taking our members milk and because cows produce every day all the time. We're producing 24-7 every day of the year. And so we really ramp up coming into the holidays, of course, because we need to make sure that supply is plentiful and there for our consumers. But it's every day of the year that we are producing to ensure that great supply for our customers. Sure. Do you have to kind of change where the milk goes in certain times of year? So at this time of year, does it go more towards butter and less towards other products? Yeah, not as much. And and this kind of gets back to your question on, you know, how efficient and sustainable is the supply chain. So we're moving the milk pretty close within a geography to the facilities that are producing the products. So in some parts of the country, we have plants that are producing butter. In other parts of the country, we have plants that are producing cheese. I mean, milk is something that you're not moving very far. Of course, it's perishable and you got to do something with it fairly quickly. So we have a national footprint to ensure that production is efficient and that supply chain is, you know, as close geographically as it can be to the final production. And as far as being a cooperative, does that affect anything? Is that a challenge at all or is it more of an opportunity? You know what? It's, I mean, I think it's an opportunity and a advantage. And so in today's world where We do have so many supply chain disruptions right now that are happening. Our greatest and most secure supply is from our farmers, and that's the milk that's coming into our facilities. And that is, like I said, most secure because that is part of our business model, and it's our ownership structure, and it's how we operate. And so, you know, we always say the cow's didn't stop producing because we're in a pandemic, right? So they're still producing. We're still moving that milk. Farmers work so hard every day for a plentiful and safe food supply for the American consumer. And Land O'Lakes is so proud to be a part of that. And that supply, because of that ownership model, is most secure and most important. And so that's an advantage, I feel. Where are the um, distribution issues right now? I mean, in the UK, we've got kind of a perfect storm of pandemic plus Brexit plus everything else. And and it seems to be mostly a shortage of drivers. Where, Where are the issues in the U.S.? Yeah, I think that's similar. It's the crux of the issue is around labor. And it, in some cases, is in the manufacturing facilities themselves. And of course, we work very hard to keep all of our employees safe. And so if there are people that need to be out because they don't feel well or their kids are at home or whatever, then they need to be out. And that is the most important thing for us. But that is difficult and challenging when you have a plant that runs 24-7, right? So we've done pretty well, frankly, but then you move into the driver and the trucks and the moving of the product, and there is a big driver shortage, and that is an issue. And then you move into the warehouses, and there's labor issues in the warehouses. And really, at the crux of the issue is around labor, and we just are working as agile as we can, as flexible as we can, with safety as the most important paramount issue for our employees. But in getting product moved through, that really is 
the logistics are really the biggest issue right now. There's plenty of butter so people can do their baking, but that doesn't really help if there are some other issues with logistics and some other ingredients. I know there have been shortages of some other ingredients. Um, Are there any challenges, do you think, for people this time of year with other ingredients? So it's interesting, like at the very beginning of the pandemic, right, we all went to the stores and we saw some empty shelves related to hand sanitizer and toilet paper and all all of those things. You don't see that as much today, but as you walk through the grocery store, you might see spotty places where something's not on the shelf and you wonder, wonder what's going on with that product. And they're probably dealing with either an ingredient shortage, a supply chain disruption, a labor issue at their plants, whatever it might be. And I don't see it as being full categories, like at the beginning of the pandemic, but you will see spotty shortages where you think, gosh, I wonder, wonder what's going on with that product. I personally have not had any issues getting all the items for baking and holiday cooking, but it is curious sometimes when you're in the grocery store and you wonder, wonder what's going on with that product something's going on that has disrupted their supply chain. And when it comes to baking, clearly you're saying that there's no issue with butter. How are you communicating that to the end consumer to let them know that it's fine because you know how people can panic? Yes, I know. Well, you know, so we are first and foremost just making sure that our product is on the shelf so that there doesn't need to be any panic. And so consumers can see that every day. And working with our retail customers and ensuring that we have the right programming and merchandising and all of that is taking place as as it would normally do during this time of the year. So consumers can go to the store, get their great Land O'Lakes butter products on shelf, see them on the shelf and have no need for any issues. Do you have any seasonal products this time of year that are just specifically for the Thanksgiving Christmas period? You know, we don't have a ton of seasonal products, but we do have some flavored butters. So, of course, we've got the pumpkin pie spice, right? Like everyone. So we have some flavored butters that kind of come out at this time of the year, but not a ton of that. So mainly product portfolio that is year round in the stores all the time for consumers. Do you see any other spikes in products that you sell this time of year as well as butter? Well, you know, we sell a lot of cheese. And so uh, Land O'Lakes, you know, we're a dairy company. So we sell butter and cheese. And cheese is less seasonal. So that is more of a steady business. And we have some new items that we've just launched uh, in this market in Minnesota, which we're super excited about in the cheese section. But butter is the main seasonal product that we have in our portfolio. All's good then in the in the world of baking and uh, getting your products out there. Yes, I people should feel very confident that they will go to the store, they will get their delicious baked goods, ingredients, their Land O'Lakes butter, and all that goes with it to cook and bake for their family and friends for the holidays. And that's on the personal level. Do you also supply for companies that make things for the stores as well, like a, on a private basis? Yeah, not no, not as much. We are mainly a branded goods organization, so we really focus on our retail brands. All right, great. Thanks very much. Is there anything that you would like to add? 
Yeah, you know, I, I would just say Land Lakes is a proud farmer-owned cooperative. We are celebrating our 100-year anniversary this year. So it's crazy to think in 1921, a group of farmers formed together to form our cooperative. And 100 years later, we are so proud to continue to serve the farmers of America in providing that safe and plentiful food supply for the American consumer. And we are just delighted to be a part of that. I always remember many years ago the first time that I went through a drive through in Canada to get a bagel and the person in the car with me wanted theirs with not much butter on it. So I asked for a bagel, lightly buttered. After I'd said it about six times, my colleague leaned across the speaker and screamed, I want an everything bagel and go easy on the butter. Lesson learned. Okay, now we head over to Dublin for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland at StoneX. Hi Charlie. Hi Jim. Well, the markets feel a lot more stable this week than they did last week, certainly. Um, We're coming off a period of what can only be described as really extreme volatility here in Europe, particularly on the butter market, uh, which uh, basically since the start of December, in in just a little over two weeks, the market has moved up by about 15% in the futures market. So, so really some very, very substantial moves there and moves we haven't really seen. Um, and, and we're at high prices now, which we haven't really seen since 2017. So really caught a lot of the market by surprise and certainly in the, the speed in which the market has moved higher here. But clearly there has been a, a challenge around availability of product. Um, I think there was an expectation that towards the end of the year, as the Christmas demand started to reduce, that more products would become available. But that simply didn't happen. And the physical market, everything from cream to any basically fat-based products were were just caught very tight. And as a result, a lot of end users uh, uh, weren't uh, fully covered and and had to buy product and and people had to buy product to fulfill contracts and and everything culminated to move the the market uh, substantially higher in in a very short period of time. Um, We do seem to have paused a little bit uh, in terms of the rally uh, over the last few days. Um, You know, we haven't turned around yet, but certainly there's more appetite from sellers to start locking in some of these higher prices. Um, and buyers seem to be a bit reluctant to continue to pay up and continue to move this market higher. Reportedly, in the physical market, cream is starting to reduce a little bit as well. That's logical now, getting this close to Christmas, that some of that demand will start to fall off. But really, as as we look forward, you know, there's still a big debate around, is there enough milk? And, um, and well, the latest statistics we have are uh, really for kind of October. And, and there, it's, it's looking pretty poor. I mean, if you look at some of the major producers, um, France for October is down 1.9% in terms of milk collections, Germany down 2.3%. So certainly a pullback, largely caused by, uh, you know, increased on-farm costs. Um, you know, everything's going up in terms of uh, energy costs, fertilizer, labor costs um, and, and feed costs. So we've had a real on, a challenge on farm and the milk prices uh, typically lag these commodity price increases. So we haven't, we're starting to see uh, milk prices around Europe increase rapidly um, and we expect them to be you know above 40 cents certainly for most of Europe by um, January February so there is a a thought process which should say that you know the higher milk prices that we start to see in quarter one 
should start compensating for the extra on-farm costs, which should help to bring back some additional milk uh, into the market. But in the meantime, availability is tight. And uh, when when markets are very tight like this, um, prices can increase rapidly, as we've seen in the last week. Thanks, Charlie. Hope you have a great Christmas and we will talk to you again in the new year. StoneX provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that does it for this podcast, and that's also it for 2021. I promise not to get weepy. As of tomorrow, I'm on holiday until the first week of January as well, although I'll still be publishing the news early every day for the rest of this week and next week. It's not like I'm going anywhere other than the stores. Plus, my car needs to get its annual inspection, and I've got a ton of other things to be working on, so the time will fly until school finishes early on Wednesday. Unless, of course, it finishes even earlier because of the pandemic. By that time, hopefully all of the Christmas wrapping will be done, which reminds me I need tape and probably some more batteries and cookies and carrots for Christmas Eve. I think I need to make a list. Okay, so I hope wherever in the world you may be, you have a great holiday season. Don't overdo it, although that's probably not great advice because I'm sure I will eat way too much. Anyway, stay safe and take care, and I really appreciate the support and all the listeners that we've had in 2021, and I look forward to starting up again, full of energy, or half full of energy, in the new year. I hope 2022 is a fantastic year for everyone out there, and thanks for listening.